Good morning. Welcome to Mayflower Church and the live stream worship service on this second Sunday of Advent. We are so thrilled that you have chosen to join us on this holy day in this holy season. I am Reverend Ruth Bell Olson, and together with Reverend Dr. Jonathan White, we are the interim pastoral team here at Mayflower. We are joined this morning by Dr. Julia Brown, our director of music, Scott Bosher, our choir director, and special guest Paul Austin, French horn player with the Grand Rapids Symphony. As always, Pat McGuire, our live stream specialist, makes this morning's service viewable. Advent Alive is today after the service from 12 to 1. It is a drive-through, so please make sure to bring your families. And in our efforts to stay connected and to inspire one another, this year we are producing a daily Advent devotional. You may sign up to receive an email each day of Advent, and you will receive artwork, music, written devotionals, prayers, all sorts of things. A link is provided on our website and in our weekly news email. While outreach is alive and well here at Mayflower, even if it has to look a little bit different than it has in years past. One of our long-standing Mayflower traditions is to adopt families in need at Christmas time. We know many of you look forward to this and plan it all year. There is still an opportunity to do this, so please visit our website and look for a link where you can get paired with a family in need. Or you can feel free to call the church for more information. Ken Goodson, who is the chair of our stewardship committee, is here this morning with a report on our stewardship campaign. Welcome, Ken. Good morning, everyone. This will be my last stewardship update from the pulpit. I'd like to start by thanking those who have already pledged, either online or by mailing in their pledge cards. I'd also like to especially thank those who sent in their pledge cards to let us know they could not pledge this year. We know this has been a very trying time and want you to know that your church is here to support you. You're going to continue to remain in our prayers. One of my goals is to completely be transparent, so let me give you a few numbers. As a reminder, churches, councils, budget plan for next year is $985,000. Other than pledges, we do receive other income, though. Our endowment income and outside of pledge donations total about $185,000, leaving us a total need of $800,000, dependent completely on pledges. As of 12-2, we have received 118 pledges totaling about 451,000, which is 56% of what is needed. 439 pledge cards were sent to Mayflower households and 52 cards were sent to visitors who have contributed in the past. We've heard from about 27% of our membership. These are facts, and we members know this is an annual call, and this effort really shouldn't be a surprise. This year, we have much at risk. So far, we haven't had to lay off any staff or cut salaries. We're going to hire a pastor who can run a complex organization, care for our members, and deliver thought-provoking biblical sermons. There are many pastors, but only a few who can effectively manage these requirements. We must offer a competitive salary to attract someone with these primary qualifications. Music, youth programs, and outreach are at risk. Mayflower is one of the wealthiest churches in Grand Rapids, if not West Michigan. And our outreach programs absolutely impact this community. We simply must restore our 15% goal for Christian outreach. Finally, I must reemphasize that any reference for pledging Money does not apply to those who have suffered job losses or income losses. Your option to take a sabbatical is genuine, and we hope others will give 
to their means as retained income allows. To have a chance of staying relevant, we need to hear from the other 321 membership households. And to our visitors, thank you for reaching out. We really appreciate it. We are a little over halfway there to maintaining a minimum level of service. But the irony is Mayflower has never been a minimum service church. And there are certainly enough families generous enough to make sure that we do not become one. I'm calling on all Mayflower members and friends that after this service, if, not, if you've not already done so, please go online to mayflowerchurch.org support or grab a pen and fill in your pledge card, mail it today, and let us know your commitment. And if you can't pledge this year, let us know. And send in your prepaid card or give the office a call. We need to understand who cannot pledge this year so that we have totals to be able to follow up. Remember, this is a personal and confidential process. We will respect your privacy as we would expect in kind our own. But I am working very hard to make this a transparent process. You need to know the facts, and I'm not one to sugarcoat. It's my task to give our Mayflower Council an accurate financial update, good or bad, so they can make the best informed decisions for our church's future. I'll update everyone in Wednesday's Mayflower News email at the end of next week and begin to send out additional reminders and to start to reach out by phone or email to those we haven't heard from. I want to make sure we connect with 100% of our membership, not just 27%. This is crunch time, Mayflower. We members, we need to hear from everyone. For Mayflower to be able to sail onward toward the brighter horizon, Beyond the virus, with fair winds and following seas again, thank you for your continued stewardship and support. God bless you all. Thank you, Ken. December is a big month for music here at Mayflower, and Dr. Julia Brown is going to share more about next week's cantata and today's music. I want to well, uh, echo Ruth's welcome of Paul Austin here today. It's wonderful to have him and his beautiful music and the original music for horn and organ that he has introduced me to, music that is so appropriate for this Sunday in Advent. And I want to remind all of you of next Sunday morning will be a big music Sunday. So it is our traditional Christmas cantata this year looking different. It's actually an opera called Amal and the Night Visitors featuring all of our choirs and Ben from the Grand Rapids Choir of Men and Boys and musicians from the Grand Rapids Symphony. We mailed out uh, bulletins for next Sunday. You should be receiving those in the mail early next week. Uh, we have a two-minute clip video with Ben and Mother, so Ben and Emily Smith, singing um, so that will give you a, it's a little teaser of what's to come on Sunday that is uh, currently on our website and on our Facebook page we've created a Facebook event um, Scott has set up an interview with Wood TV for next Friday morning at their nine o'clock news hour I mention all these things because these are ways that you can help us get the word out and invite your friends and your family. Because it's virtual, we can reach people all over the country and all over the world. It's an important message of Christmas miracle, an important message of hope that we want to share with everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. 
On a sad note, we want to let you know that a longtime member, Dr. Gordon Van Otteren, passed away this week, so please remember his family in your prayers. And now let us begin our time of worship with the lighting of the candle of peace. In a world of war, violence, pandemic, where families live in shelters and children grow up in fear, God, we call upon you to come. In a world where peace seems to be so far away, we call upon you, Prince of Peace, to come. In this season of Advent, We wait for the coming of peace into our world. We await the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. We await, we await for those who will come. Come, Messiah, come and save us. peace that only you can bring through your Son, Jesus, the Christ. May we walk in the paths of peace. Amen. East 
pray with me. Lord, let us hear what you will speak, for you will speak peace to your people, to those of us who are faithful, to those of us turn to you in our hearts. Surely your salvation is at hand for all who fear you. May your glory dwell in our land. We pray for your steadfast love and faithfulness to meet For your righteousness and peace to kiss each other. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jerusalem of the 
scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths Straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy One, open our ears, our minds, our hearts, our hands. Open us to you. Amen. The Greek historian Thucydides wrote of the Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta, from 431 B.C. to 404 B.C., that the Greeks spoke the same language, had similar cultures, and worshipped the same gods, but they didn't understand one another. Donald Kagan, in his three-volume history of the Peloponnesian War, points out that it changed all Greek norms, that what happened, even in the age of Plato, uh, just after Socrates, at a time when Aristotle would go to Macedonia after that war, and Macedonia would be free to conquer the city-states because they had exhausted themselves. Even at that time, the Greeks simplified their beliefs. 
They worked on idioms. They worked on slogans. They worked on popular untruths. It was a time of populism. And it led to the downfall of the Greek city-states and the rise of Macedonia. Richard Hofstadler, 20th century historian, once wrote that there is a streak of populism in American history, an anti-intellectual streak that rejects the complexity of American history, that favors slogans over facts, that looks for simplification in the midst of complexity. Contemporary historian Colin Woodward said that in America, we have simplified our myth, thinking there is one story of one people where we come united to create one country. That is a falsehood, Woodward says. Why? Because we have a number of creation stories, a number of national stories, a number of different traditions. And the melting pot simply doesn't put those together. We believe in a Puritan culture of pilgrims, of Congregationalists, who came to the Northeast. But Woodward says, what happened is we had New England Puritans settling in New England, around the Great Lakes area, up into Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. This is the nation of the Yankees. And it stops in Minnesota. That's why when you go across the country, with rare exceptions, including the one in Honolulu that congregational missionaries established in the 1820s, you find a lack of congregational churches. The congregational churches are in the land that the Puritans settled and where they moved. But if we look at New York, we see a strong Dutch influence in the east. And if we look into the South and the Caribbean, elite British slaveholders created America. And it goes on and on from there. But the Revolutionary War wasn't simply this group of people who got together and fought for the American way. It was a conglomerated mess of different ideas. To say anything different is to ignore the truth. And that gets us into trouble today because we like to follow the populist slogan of the idea of one country, one culture. In reality, what we are following is an idealized notion of the Puritan settlers, and their ideas do not dominate the country. Although, the elites who wrote our Constitution and created our government were educated in the traditional liberal arts. They modeled the government after Rome and Athens, but that only existed in their minds. In fact, they even created universities to perpetuate that myth. But in the 1960s, universities, looking at American history critically, said, wait a minute, that's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which prompted a lot of people to follow a populist notion of let's create our own universities where they teach the myth and to denigrate universities that are looking for truth. Populism is fickle. It doesn't last. And it's not true. When we first look at Mark, Mark's message looks like it's designed for populism. That it is just a simple message for people who can't think critically and don't reflect on life. It begins with a populist movement, John the Baptizer, giving a message to a population that is generally illiterate. It presents Jesus as the leader of a popular movement. And it ignores the fact 
which uh, a book called Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs by John Hansen and Richard Horsley. There were all kinds of religious movements and political movements in Jesus' time. Jesus just represented one of them. On the surface, it seems like Mark's gospel is extremely simple and designed for popular appeal. In fact, Mark's Greek is so bad it doesn't come through in our translations because translators clean it up. But his Greek is so poor that it doesn't even hang together, although his Greek is a heck of a lot better than mine. But Mark, the theologian, Mark, the storyteller, Mark, the master of literature, goes far beyond popular appeal. There is a depth and richness to his gospel that can touch our very souls. It deals with ultimate truth. The first sentence in Greek says a whole lot about today's passage. It begins, Arche, the beginning, Tan Evangelio, Jesu Christo, Oyo, Theo. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. The beginning. Mark knows that he is talking about something that urgently needs to be communicated. And he writes with that urgency. He writes with that passion. In fact, he uses the word immediately 40 times in his gospel. Things are happening. The next thing that we see is Evangelio, the good news. We get the word evangelist and evangelical from that Greek uh, root. And that says something to our church. We have a populist group of Christians who have claimed that title. It's not their title. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The depth, the richness, the complexity, the answers to cosmic questions. We are evangelicals. We believe in the good news. And the next word, Jesu, the Greek form of Jesus, the Hebrew form would be Yeshua or Joshua. That means the Lord brings, the Lord brings salvation. Common name. Well, Jesus would be a common person with the exception of the next title. Christo. Christos. The Christ. The Messiah. The person who is the bearer of God's message. Lots of people get that title. But Jesus is the end of a long line of prophets. And the final word, Oyo Theo, Son of God. Again, people get the title, Son of God. The king was, some, was frequently referred to as the Son of God. Others received that title. But Jesus is different. Jesus is the end of a line of prophets. He has come consumed by and proclaiming the Christ, the spirit that was with God from the beginning, the spirit that is holy Jesus, fully human and fully divine. 
Then Mark takes a twist. He says, in the words of Isaiah, it's not the words of Isaiah. Part of what he's quoting is from Exodus. At that time, it was believed that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. Part of it is from Isaiah. And part of it is from one of the minor prophets. He puts it all together. What he's doing is blending the entire Old Testament into a single phrase. A straight path. Make straight the road to the Lord. Follow the straight path. The early Christians were called followers of the way. Hadas in Greek. I love that. Because one of the main phrases for Hebrews is Derek, the path, the way. And in Islam, Muslims talk about following the straight path. Buddhists talk about following the way. Mark is on to something. This is the way to behave, and this is the man who will lead the way. Now, not only does he combine that, but he does some interesting things in looking at John the baptizer. He is combining both Elijah and Elisha. First of all, where is John operating? He is operating in the Jordan River. The Jordan River where Joshua has the priest separate the waters and the people of Israel walk into Canaan. The Jordan where Elijah is coming to be taken to heaven, he takes off his mantle strikes the water, and Elijah and Elisha walk through. John says, I'm not worthy to uh, tie his sandal. Elisha says to Elijah, I can't do this unless you give me a double blessing. Elijah will answer, that will be up to the Lord. Elijah looks up and he sees Elijah going into the clouds on a chariot and his mantle falls to the ground. Elisha picks it up, goes to the Jordan, strikes the water, and the waters part. He walks through. Mark knows in telling the story of John the baptizer, and the coming of Jesus, that we're in an Elijah-Elisha moment, that a double blessing is coming. And it is not simply a phrase. It is not some type of popular concept that can be summed up in a couple of words or in any dogma. It is the complexity and the mystery of the cosmos. It is looking into the Jordan River, seeing it separate, and stepping into the mystery. Does that mean that you literally have to believe that the water separated? What do you think? Does it mean that there is depth, that there is complexity, that there is richness in the faith? What do you think? Look at the baptizer. Looking at, look at the one who will be baptized. Look deeply into the mystery of the cosmos. Peace is not there on the surface. Peace is in the depth. Peace is in the mystery of the concept we call God. In the name of the Creator, the Christ, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this busy season, our most important preparations will happen here in our hearts when we make a way for God to come into our lives, when we prepare the way of the Lord. In the midst of our preparations, we bring gifts to share so that God's love will shine brightly through the ministry of this church and in our own lives as well.
Friends, we come to this table not because it's required. We come to this table because we are invited. We come to this table to share in God's great mystery. We come to this table to look at the Jordan River, to look at the baptizer, to see the face of the Christ. We come to this table to celebrate. We come to this table because it is a feast of love. So come from the east, come from the west. Come from the north and come from the south. Man or woman, young or old, Gentile or Jew, come to this table. Come to the gifts of God for the people of God. And God, with your people on earth and all the company in heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy God, you are the true light, and we thank you for bringing us into your light to spread radiance and joy instead of hopelessness and fear as we approach this table of Holy Communion. Let us be aware of how we are complicit in the systems of oppression and division, and let us also be aware of your unending forgiveness and grace. We praise you for this table, that it is open to all. Regardless of where we find ourselves, what is in our past or our future, we are invited to partake of this holy meal. We give you thanks, proclaiming the great mystery of faith. of bread and wine with your spirit that we may be filled with the power of Christ. Fill all the saints on earth and all the saints gathered with you as all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. you to take whatever elements you choose or to participate symbolically with us and join with us in this holy communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you, ministering to you in the name of the Christ, we share the bread.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Ministering to you in the name of Christ, we share this cup.
Things are complex, but God is good. So on this day, when we long for peace in the world, go with God. Go with the complexity and know that you are loved beyond measure. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.